Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. Dr. Jill Manning is here today. I am so excited to have her. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified clinical partner specialist who specializes in working with individuals impacted by sexual addiction, pornography, or betrayal trauma in their primary relationship. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Manning is a researcher, author, consultant, and activist. She has been featured in numerous television and radio programs, and in 2005 was invited to testify before the U.S. Senate subcommittee about the harms of pornography on the family. She currently serves on the board of directors for the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. You know that as APSATs. Our audience knows APSATs well, as well as the board of directors for Enough is Enough. Dr. Manning is a native of Calgary, Alberta, and currently lives in Colorado with her family. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to have her because so many women are wondering about couples therapy. We have women in our groups who are asking questions, who are saying, hey, I need a good couples therapist. Where should I go? And that's what we're going to talk about today. I've seen two different situations with couples therapy that I'm just going to introduce this topic with, and then we'll talk about it from there. Number one, many men are going to therapy and the women aren't seeing a big difference. And so they think, well, if we get a couples therapist and I'm involved, then maybe I'll see the improvements that I'm looking for. So there's that element of it. Another element is that they're seeing their marriage issues as marriage issues or communication issues rather than as an abuse issue or as a addiction issue. And Lundy Bancroft, he does not advise couples therapy in any way, shape or form unless the abuser has taken full accountability for his abuse. And there have been no abuse episodes in the last two years. But then on the other hand that I just talked about, some therapists want the wife going in to make sure the husband is telling the truth because the addicts often lie or minimize even to their therapists. So this is a very complex issue. And so that is why I've asked Jill to help us unpack all of that and make sense of it so that we can know what we need to do in our specific situations. Let's jump in because there is a lot to unpack. And this is probably a layered podcast need. So I want our listeners to be realistic that I'm hoping we can cover some good ground today. But it is complex. And anytime we're dealing with human beings, and especially human beings in relationship, there's so many moving parts. Situations are unique. And I'm sure there will be listeners that may find exceptions to every guideline and rule I'm going to outline today. But as a marriage and family therapist who's been working 17 years in this field and specializing in partners for the bulk of that, this is an area I feel really passionate about because I see a lot of harm being done to individuals and also to marriages themselves when couple therapy is not timed well. And the timing is really key. And and we're going to get into that today. But I want to introduce this idea of what I'm calling the rule of five, rule meaning guidelines. I want us to start right from the beginning. And let's think of traditional couple therapy. Okay, let's start that as a a reference point for this conversation, because when we're dealing with betrayal, trauma and sexual addiction, I believe as a clinician that it departs quite significantly from traditional couple therapy. And we need to have a good understanding of those differences. So in traditional, kind of your typical run of the mill couple therapy situation, there are five, again, this is the rule of five five key goals for traditional couple therapy. The first one being 
supporting a couple in identifying sources of conflict. Number two, helping each person in the relationship identify their own participation in conflict and issues that may be coming up. Number three would be helping a couple realize healthy expectations for the relationship and one another. Number four is defining how the relationship's going to work, the boundaries, the roles, the division of labor, all of that. And then fifth, improving the skill set of a couple, whether that be communication, intimacy, conflict resolution. So I'm calling those traditional rule of five main goals in traditional couple therapy. But there's what we call indications and contraindications to traditional therapy. And again, I want to use the rule of five. There's five main contraindications and five indications. Contraindication is a fancy word for saying things that we see where we would not recommend couple therapy. And then indications, meaning things that would indicate that that would be a good thing. Here's the thing, and many of my colleagues will readily acknowledge this, that I do co-therapy with and consult with. This is counterintuitive, what I'm about to say. And that is that when sexual addiction comes to light and there is a betrayal that surfaces, what people like myself ask couples to do is very counterintuitive. And that is to not engage in couple therapy initially, and sometimes for a long while, not to do couple therapy. And that's counterintuitive because when something like this comes up, the relationship is serious, seriously compromised. It's a major threat to the marital bond, or e- even if pe- two people aren't married, just the relationship itself takes a major hit. And so it's counterintuitive for us to say, hey, all this stuff's come up that's really harming your relationship, and we're going to ask you to hold off on couple therapy, perhaps for a long while. That's counterintuitive. I understand and really both empathize and sympathize and support people that have this issue come up and they think we need to get to a couple therapist ASAP because we are in big trouble. That makes Mm -hmm. logical sense. But here's why. Again, going back to the rule of five, five contraindications to traditional couple therapy. And then I want to get into when is it indicated and a good thing because timing is key. And we know from research, Anne, that when couple therapy is not well-timed, it actually can put a coupleship at greater risk for divorce and dissolution. So I take this really seriously. I want listeners to know that my personal stance as a clinician is that I do my very best to do all that we can to keep relationships intact, especially families intact, when that is healthy and desirable to do so. It's not always safe to do that, and it's not always what's wanted. All things considered, if that is wanted and it's healthy and safe to do so, I do my very best to make sure that that can happen. But let's get into contraindications for even traditional couple therapy. And listeners will start realizing, ah, okay, this fits with betrayal, trauma, and sex addiction pretty well. The first contraindication is physical violence or any type of of abuse, emotional, sexual, physical, financial, any type of abuse that's going on. That is not a situation where we would want couple therapy. Number two, mental illness or addiction problems, especially if they are active and untreated or in the early stages of being untreated. 
Number three, if one person continues to engage in a relationship outside of the marriage, now having done work with pornography for years, I'm of the opinion and belief, and I believe there's research to back this up, that pornography is a very insidious type of relationship outside of the marriage. Number four is when one or both parties have decided to begin divorce proceedings. And fifth, if there's a lack of empathy, if one or both parties is either not wanting to or incapable of being empathetic to the other's reality, that's not a situation we want them to be in couple therapy. So do those five make sense? Absolutely. When things got really bad for me, we had never tried couple therapy before. And I was like, okay, this we have to do this because we have to do something. And things got a lot worse. And then he got arrested. So for me, he became more abusive because it was like, oh, now's the time I can unleash all my resentments toward her and all my feelings based on all my erroneous thought processes that he had. And he just became more and more abusive through that process. And when we start couple therapy, I'm saying this, Anne, honestly and truthfully, as someone who has both been in couple therapy in my own relationship and also as a couple therapist, okay? I've been on both sides of this situation. And when we enter that arena called couple therapy, there's two assumptions that are really important for us to be aware of. There's an assumption of safety and there's an assumption of equality. Mm Mm-hmm. In a situation with sexual betrayal and sexual addiction, there is not equality, especially if there are secrets and dangerous secrets at that, and there is a lack of safety. So if you have a traditional couple therapist in the room that is not well-versed in the dynamics of sexual addiction, gaslighting, and the emotional abuse, and also the physical risks that this issue can bring up, it's not a good situation to be in. The risk of gaslighting and the emotional abuse in really subtle and sometimes blatant ways can enter into that space. It pollutes the ability for that space to hold both people in an appropriate way and for there to be healing to occur because everyone's protecting themselves in that. Okay. Let's talk about when it is indicated, when it is a good thing to do, because I think it sheds light on what I've just shared with the contraindications. In my practice and when I look at the research and also when I just look at results, but I see what's working with couples around the country, again, rule of five, there's five things that I believe help make couple therapy indicated. One is sobriety. Second is that there's been a disclosure. And there's different ways to get the truth out. I I don't want anybody to think there's a, a cookie cutter, only one right way to do that. The truth can come out in a number of ways. It's common for that to be in a therapeutic disclosure, but it doesn't have to be. But I want a couple, before they're going into that type of space, that the truth is on the table. Both people, the secrets, everything's out in the open. Number three, that trauma and mental illness have been appropriately treated and addressed if those are issues in the mix. And we know in most cases they are, right? Two-thirds of pornography addicts we know have a mental illness of some sort. 44% have a personality disorder or traits. So chances are good that we do have mental illness in the mix. And with partners, we know that roughly 70% experience PTSD symptoms and experience trauma. So again, number three is a big one, that trauma and mental illness be appropriately 
diagnosed and assessed and treated, that's big in and of itself. Number four, that there be empathy, the ability for both to empathize, which we all know with sex addiction, empathy in and of itself is a big roadblock for a lot of sex addicts in their healing. That can be a real process in helping them get back online with having healthy human empathy. And then also number five, the desire to reconcile. So again, in overview, sobriety, disclosure, truths on the table, trauma and mental illness are assessed and being treated. There's empathy and we have a desire to reconcile. When those five things are in the mix, that can be, and I don't want to say for everybody, but generally speaking, that is a good basis for the timing of couple therapy. But then it's also what type of therapy and with whom. I really advise working with a couple therapist that's very well-versed in addiction. If you can find someone that's well-versed in sexual addiction, that can be enormously helpful. That's going to understand the subtleties. You know what I mean? When I say small things, not that they're less important, but just more subtle, they may be harder to detect, smaller in the way of being obvious in the room. So two things concern me when we're talking about this. The first is that if empathy is not present, I have heard people talk about empathy training and helping the addict learn how to mimic empathy when they're not actually feeling it so that they can learn the mechanics of empathy, but end up faking empathy. They end up learning scripts for empathy rather than actually becoming empathetic, which can cause a wife to be more confused because she might be more abused by the empathy being jerked around by this like, oh, he's acting empathetic now, but he's really still acting out and she doesn't know. Let's talk about that first and then I'll hopefully remember my second thing. So one of the most important things that I want for partners to gain in their own recovery process is coming home again to their gut, reconnecting to their gut. And empathy really is hard for a human being to fake because if someone's really connected and they have a good working gut, you'll know there's something missing in that. For a a strong therapist that really understands how critical empathy is, both the reception of empathy and the giving of empathy, right? That she and her gut reads accurately whether that's the real deal or not, and whether he's able to have the skills. And I know I'm speaking in a gender segregated way here for ease of conversation. That's really, really important. Now, I want to introduce a couple of ideas here that sometimes aren't included in this conversation of couple therapy, Anne. And that is, I do see a place for couples meeting with a therapist, but it's not in a true couple therapy situation. It may be treatment planning. It may be psychoeducation. It may be preparation for a disclosure. I've met with many couples where they're not ready for couple therapy, but if the partner is okay and feels safe with him coming into a session, he'll be brought in to observe an individual therapy session with a specific goal in mind. And she can also do the same. I have two women that I'm working with right now who are not involved in couple therapy, but they attend individual sessions with their husband. So they are more of a witness and an observer of that process, which has been enormously Mm -hmm. helpful for them. Again, you need a skilled therapist that can set that up well, 
But that's an option that can be a good in-between. Let's say a husband who's sexually addicted is struggling with empathy. There's two scenarios that I could see working really well in the early stages of empathy training. One, two therapists and the, the wife and husband meet together in a joint session and have a very specific set of interventions set up where she's able to be fully supported and that process is observed on her behalf and likewise for him. It's not couple therapy, it's a joint meeting and there's specific work that's being done around empathy. Also, for him to be brought in, let's say, to an individual session of hers or vice versa. Again, not couple therapy, it's individual work, but there's a power in being able to witness and be able to call on the other partner to maybe answer a question or to respond. Would that be the situation where if he is minimizing or lying to his therapist, that the wife could weigh in and say, no, 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 these things he's telling you are not true, that type of a situation, so that the wife can know that what is happening in his therapy is leading to her safety rather than he's just spiraling in his own lies in his therapy sessions. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Again, there'd have to be a lot of safety built into that, right? Because I would never want a woman to be speaking up and out about something and then putting herself at risk after a session ends. We never want that. But yes, in answer to your question, there are ways we can set that up where she can be a reality check and an important reference point for his therapist to get a read of what's going on. Now, with all of this said, I I want listeners to understand that when a couple is choosing reconciliation and there is sobriety and good recovery work occurring for both parties, that I am passionate about people getting to couple therapy as soon as we are able to have them ready for that. I've had a couple of people recently suggest that I'm against couple therapy It couldn't be further from the truth. I am very much for it. I think it's actually essential that the couple relationship itself be exposed to good quality treatment and healing. That's absolutely necessary. In truth, Anne, I think it's a part of the recovery process that we as an entire community are weaker in right now. I think across the country, we're doing a decent job of helping bring people into sobriety and helping to deal with trauma. I think the couple piece is the weakest aspect of recovery right now, at least. And I hope that will change in the upcoming years. But I want people to move into that work as soon as they are able. But I think where I see a lot of harm done is when couple therapy is not timed well. And again, going back to the rule of five, for contraindications and indications, if people use that as a guide, it really can help reduce the risk of timing that poorly. Right. Let's talk about attachment therapy for just a minute. Now, I did attachment therapy with my husband when those counterindications were present. And the therapist that we did attachment therapy did not say, oh, wait a minute, you have these things present. And so we should not do attachment therapy. The assumption in those sessions was if addiction is an attachment disorder, then the solution is attachment therapy. Can you talk about that for a minute? Really, really good question. And again, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because that really is the logic that's being used by many 
many people seeking therapy and many people providing therapy. If this is rooted in attachment wounds that have not been healed or trauma that's unresolved, then therefore the solution would be attachment work. I get it. And we have to be really careful because healthy attachment work must be founded on safety. Nobody attaches without lack of safety, unless it's a really anxious, unhealthy, dysfunctional attachment, a trauma bond, let's say. Okay. Mm -hmm. But in terms of healthy attachment, safety must be there. And we must have trust and respect, equality, consent, right? All of the elements of healthy intimacy also apply to healthy attachment. Again, the timing, I think, is critical with anyone that's dealing with attachment wounds, both in their histories, but also with one another. So I recently spoke with an international trainer of emotionally focused therapy, which is one of the most common attachment focused therapies right now. And it's very well supported in the research. It's actually one of the top types of therapy I recommend couples seek out. I express concerns around some of the harm that I'm seeing done with attachment-focused therapy in sexual addiction recovery, namely that people are engaging in that before safety is established and honesty is established, or even sobriety. Or lack of abuse. Or abuse, right. right. And they 100% agreed with what I'm saying today, that there must be sobriety, there must be honesty on the table, and some key things managed first, trauma, mental illness, you know, addiction, care really put in place before we can help couples get to what they call softer emotions and really looking at patterns. And here's one thing and that I want to really, really stress is that when couples go in for couple therapy, Again, there's this assumption of equality and we look at patterns, okay? You know, he does something and it invites her into a certain stance or behavior and and then that reinforces a pattern and behavior for him. And there's kind of this affinity pattern, if you could draw that out, you know, the figure eight and they go back and forth in a dance, a relational dance. Well, that works for a lot of common marital issues. That's not a helpful perspective though. If there's such a power imbalance in terms of secrets and addiction. And abuse. I think we should always include abuse here, right, too? Abuse, yeah. I mean, abuse is not in every single situation, but in, in many it is. You're right. So what I see happening is if someone's in attachment-focused care and it's poorly timed or the therapist doesn't understand the intricacies of SA work – There's this really harmful dance that can happen in which, and I'm going to completely paraphrase and overgeneralize with this, but there's a suggestion that, well, you know, she may be withdrawing or being too critical. And then that invites him into looking at porn and acting out with prostitutes. And the more he does that, that invites her into being more critical. It's it's ludicrous. Mm -hmm. It's ludicrous to suggest that she in any way is to blame or is participating in him acting out. It does so much harm in having women feel blamed for those behaviors. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I worry about with therapy is that very situation or same thing with the abuse, right? It's the dance of she 
asks him to cut the tomatoes and he feels shame. And so he yells at her and screams in her face, you know? And there's something that we call false equivalency, right? We're making a false equivalent of two behaviors. She's critical and he's acting out with prostitutes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Or she's critical and he's punching walls. Right. Those types of false equivalencies I see as highly dangerous and harmful for both parties, as well as the relationship itself. We look at genuine patterns of withdraw, withdraw, pursue, pursue, withdraw, pursue. There's all sorts of combinations couples can get into, but we have to have that couple be at a place, again, where there's sobriety, disclosure, trauma and mental illness have been addressed. There's empathy being built or there, and there's a desire to reconcile. Then we can look at certain patterns and we've got a a level playing field. We have equality in the room. We have safety in the room. We can identify patterns where there is equivalency, but with SA, there is not equivalency. She cannot cause or cure any of his acting out behaviors. And when a man, for instance, I had someone recently suggest, well, I feel so much guilt and shame when she does this. Therefore, that's what causes me to act out with pornography. You need someone that can completely kibosh that. That is immature Mm -hmm. nonsense. No, you acted out with pornography because you do not have good skills yourself for dealing with loneliness, anger, stress, and your emotions. That is an individual issue. And actually, the irony is that as a licensed marriage and family therapist, I'm becoming more and more convinced that individual therapy that may include some joint meetings, going back to psychoeducation work and some treatment planning work, right? That can be effective. Mm -hmm. But the true couple therapy, I believe, needs to be postponed until we have that rule of five in place. At that point, I see incredible results. When couple therapy is well-timed and we have that rule of five in place, I see people being able to really focus on attachment and really heal. And let me give a positive and negative example. I'm working with someone right now who has been in couple therapy for two and a half years. And the focus has been attachment work and working on trust and intimacy and communication. She came to me two years into that two and a half years of couple therapy. She had some of the worst trauma I've seen. She would be shaking in the room. Okay. Uncontrollable shaking that would seem to come out of nowhere, extremely traumatized. And part of the focus of couple therapy was forgiveness. And I asked, do you have a safety plan in your gut? Do you feel that you have the truth? The answer was no. None of that had been in place. So it made sense to me, hey, as a couple, they're not moving forward because she's still on the seventh floor of a burning building. <laughs> we, we have to get her out of that situation before they can really work on, on the coupleship. Lo and behold, they continue the couple work. And I'm now advocating for a second disclosure. He had done a disclosure, but in her gut, she didn't feel that it was complete. And it had never been polygraphed. Now, I don't want to suggest every disclosure needs to be polygraphed to be full and complete. It doesn't. But in a growing number of situations, we're seeing polygraph have good results. In this case, she chose polygraph. Lo and behold, it comes out in a second disclosure. There was a whole category of acting out she knew nothing about. It was impossible for that couple to heal. He was in the couple therapy holding secrets that were quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. And she was in the session 
not feeling safe at a very deep level, a cellular level, and was not safe with him. It's not until we were able to put a stop to the couple theory. Well, actually, what happened was they stopped it. They spun out of it because they decided together as a couple, this isn't working. Well, it wasn't working because they didn't have the foundation necessary to have it work. In the individual work, we're finally getting some traction. And guess what? They're burnt out of couple therapy. I'm having a hard time getting them convinced that this could be a good thing because they've spent two and a half years spinning their wheels and in fact, doing more harm to the relationship and attachment. On the flip side, let's talk about the positive. I worked with a couple. She came to me initially. I was able to collaborate effectively with his individual therapist. We were able to really do solid individual work, get trauma under control. We were able to get addiction under control. We had a polygraph disclosure. It took him three three tries on the polygraph test to get the whole truth out. Each time he would fail, oh, there'd be another category of behavior disclosed the next time. We finally got the whole truth out. And after that point, we had 90 days sobriety established. We had a disclosure, trauma and mental illness, depression for him, trauma for her were being managed. We chose a therapist that understood addiction, but focused exclusively on couples. We launched them into couple therapy. And guess what? They're doing beautifully well. They're really moving forward. So to me, it contrasts the power of timing that effectively. And that's when I see marriages really thriving and healing and becoming stronger than they ever were. So timing is key, as well as finding a therapist that understands this issue. And you may have to shop around a bit to be a good consumer of mental health services, just like we are with dentists, doctors, lawyers, any professional service. Be a wise consumer. Ask them what their approach is. Share your concerns. Ask them when you're shopping for a therapist. Ask them if there are any contraindications to couple therapy in their view and what the indications would be. I think that speaks volumes about someone's theoretical background and approach to couple therapy. I think also someone who has a way of assessing a woman's safety. That's why I think APSATS is so important. The multidimensional partner trauma model with safety and stabilization as the first phase to make sure that those things are addressed properly, both in terms of abuse and in terms of the truth and all of the things that you need, right, to be able to have safety. The therapist that I did couples work with there was absolutely no talk of, are you safe? What does it mean to be safe? How do we establish safety? There was nothing like that. It was attachment will solve all of these problems. Having those three phases of the model, the safety and stabilization phase first as the number one thing, and then working into the other phases later, the second one, which is processing and grieving, and the third, which is reconnecting, are so essential for women to make sure that they're safe and make sure that their husband is actually in recovery, not just faking it or not just kind of going with the flow so that the relationship doesn't fall apart. Exactly. I'm so grateful that you brought up the three-phased model. And typically, it's in the middle to the later second phase of that that couple therapy, from my perspective, works well, or even the third in some cases if trauma has been really elevated and severe, but certainly not in that first, you know, building safety and stabilization. 
you know, in defense of colleagues that do couple therapy from the beginning, I've had them say, well, Jill, you know, these couples are living together. Often they have families together. We can't deny the reality of their day-to-day world. They're living as couples day-to-day. So we can't just ignore that for months while they're in individual therapy. I understand that. And I think there's ways if you have good individual therapists that have releases and can collaborate and coordinate important details or to have occasional joint meetings, but it's not couple therapy and those boundaries are clear. I've seen that work extremely well. But true deep where you're being vulnerable with one another, sharing deep and vulnerable feelings, working on attachment, I just have never seen strong results or good outcomes unless there is safety. And, and well, that rule of rule of five, going back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so grateful for that. So Jill, you are on the APSATS board and all of the coaches here at Betrayal Trauma Recovery are APSATS trained. There are women who are a little jittery about seeing a coach in conjunction with a therapist. So while I have you here, can you tell our audience why you think our APSATS coaches are so amazing? <laughs> Great question. I'm, I'm always happy to voice my support for what you're doing, Anne, and, and APSAT coaches, because in my own practice, and I am a therapist, I see great benefit in coaches being included in a treatment plan. Of course, APSATS training, I believe, is so effective in helping people have the background and mindset along the lines of what we've talked about today and really understanding safety and the nuances of this. Ethically, I feel a need to distinguish there is a difference between therapists and coaches. They're not the same. And that takes nothing away from either or. They serve different roles. Speaking as a therapist, how I recommend and use coaches in my work with partners is coaches, one, do not have the same limitations that I do legally and ethically with cross-state lines and work. So I can have a specialist out in California that's an APSATS coach be part of a treatment plan, and she's able to speak more personally about her own story, is able to do really good goal work and an effective support in ways that as a therapist, I may be more limited in. And also, you know, everyone has a different skill set. I think it's a team approach. I tend to be very collaborative in my work. So I like having as many supports as possible, you know, realistically and within budget, of course, that we can. In my experience, the APSATS coaches and those associated with betrayal trauma recovery have just really been able to meet needs that I, as a therapist, either am not specialized in or don't have the same experience with. It's been a wonderful resource for my partners. And and I would encourage anyone that has concerns to perhaps work with both. Find a clinician you really like because clinicians are going to have training in diagnosing things and working clinically with someone therapeutically. I don't see them as mutually exclusive, Anne. I would encourage people that, as you said, may feel jittery or anxious about that to contact both and to explore how maybe both could be used in different different roles in their treatment plan. We've had people contact us, for example, who have legal questions. We get random emails all the time from women all over the world, and we are not attorneys. None of our APSATS coaches have legal training. But what the coaches are really good at is helping women know, okay, these are the questions you may want to ask an attorney, right? Or if you're looking for a therapist, coach them through picking the right therapist. How do they know which therapist is the right therapist? How do they know that the 
treatment that they're seeking is working for them. So coaching them through the process of maybe legal issues or therapeutic issues is what our coaches are really good at. Because a lot of women, when they first find out or when they've been searching for a long time, they don't know exactly where to go or they don't know what questions to ask. They're not sure how to go about the process. Our coaches are really good at helping them navigate this whole world of sex addiction and abuse and all of these things that are very complex in a way that works for them. Just having someone walk you through the process is, I think, really important. I wish I would have had that in my journey. Uh, Absolutely. I support everything you've just said. And, you know, my experience, I can't speak for every coach that's been trained with APSATS, but all the ones that I'm aware of have had therapy themselves around this issue. So I think they're really well positioned to help partners explore looking for a good therapist and how coaching can fill a different but important role as well. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today. We have a lot more to talk about. I hope it's an ongoing conversation. It is so complex that I'm very grateful to have talked about the rule of five today, which can help women really understand when to time couple therapy. You're awesome, Jill. Thank you. That was amazing. If you are interested in scheduling a one-on-one support call with any of our coaches to assess whether or not it's the right time for couple therapy for you, go to our site, btr.org. You can schedule with any one of our APSATS trained coaches. We also have many support groups available. Please check out the group Detecting Gaslighting. That will be starting very soon. If you're interested, register on our site, btr.org. And as always, we'd love to hear your comments. If you have feedback or questions, please go to our site, btr.org backslash podcast. Comment on this podcast. Let us know what you think. Let us know your experience. And until next week, stay safe out there.